0: Hello, I'm Alva, and you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Vladimir Ashurkov, a member of Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption party based in London. I'm very pleased to be joined on today's New Statesman podcast by Vladimir Ashurkov. Mr. Ashurkov is a Russian opposition politician currently living in London. In 2011, he and Alexei Navalny, who you've almost certainly heard of, a prominent figure in the Russian opposition movement, established the non-profit Anti-Corruption Foundation, of which Mr. Shirkov is an executive director. In 2014, as a result of politically motivated criminal persecution by Russian authorities, Vladimir Shirkov moved to London and he received political asylum in 2015. And he's now a a very well-placed figure to comment on Russian lawfare from a British perspective and what can be done about it in the UK. So welcome to the podcast, Vladimir. Thank you for having me, (laughs) Alman. Well, it's a great pleasure, Vladimir. Um, Just before we um, get into the current situation and what can be done in Westminster... To tackle aspects of Russian corruption. It would just be great to hear what motivated you to get involved with Alexei Navalny's party and the journey there.
1: Sure. My career has been in financial investments and I was working as a an executive in a large Russian investment company called Alpha Group, which was headed by one of the oligarchs, Mikhail Friedman. So he was my uh, direct boss. And I um, was throughout my life interested in politics and government, but uh, not until I started reading blog of a young lawyer, Alexei Navalny, I had a desire to, to start doing anything in that respect. So his approach really resonated with me. He wasn't just talking about corruption in Russia. He was trying to do something about it. He was launching lawsuits against powerful Russian corporations, launching complaints, and he was writing about it in his blog. Uh, with a sense of humor and the uh, self irony that uh, was very appealing. So I wrote to him. I, I told him I have a lot of experience in finance and corporate governance. Here are some things that we can do together. And we uh, met uh, and uh, we hit it off. So from that time on, I started helping him in my spare time. And then in a couple of years, I had to leave my corporate job because of my political involvement. And then In another couple of years, I had to leave Russia because a criminal case was opened against me. So for the last eight years, I have been living in London and being a a part of Navalny's team in trying to bring change to Russia.
0: So it means that you have this amazing perspective as someone now looking at Russian corruption, essentially, but from the vantage point of London, which is great for us on the New Statesman podcast, because we mainly focus on Westminster politics, and that's our vantage point. So you're really uniquely placed to talk to us about how you see the UK tackling this and what could be done, what the issues are. So if that's not too general, a question: What are the main ways in which the Ru- Russian corruption intersects with the British system?
1: London is probably the the biggest heaven for dirty money from globally. It's it's a capital of European, if not the world's finance and business, and naturally. A lot of money that flows through London is proceeds of corruption. And corruption affects Britain in a number of ways. It distorts market practices. So, for instance, the Russian bank, VTB, it's a state owned bank with, uh, until recently, a big office in London. Let's say it competes with uh, a British bank, with uh, Barclays or RBS, uh, for a mandate in an African country. A institution like VTB, which has a lot of experience in corruption, bribing, etc., in Russia, they would be unscrupulous in giving bribes to obtain a banking mandate in an African country, and something that Royal Bank of Scotland probably wouldn't be able to do. So, one aspect is this distortion of a market by unscrupulous players. Second, corrupt money is bringing with it corrupt practices. The officials that, that try to park their money in property, try to park their money in financial assets in London, they are helped by a network of influencers, lawyers, bankers, property agents, who are all are beneficiaries of this corrupt regime. And this inevitably affects the political climate, the political environment, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So people, Roman Abramovich, is able to whitewash his reputation through the fact that he purchased a one of the most prestigious FMU League clubs. He was a regular at various political meetings with lords and other figures of political establishment. So that's what uh, has been happening in London for years, and uh, I think Russia is quite unique among countries that, that are involved in corruption, that it has a malign influence. There is corruption in a number of African countries, there's corruption in China, but only Russia uses corruption as a strategic tool to undermine the Western system, the international order. Uh, And we've seen that with uh, Putin's regime over at least the last eight years since the annexation of Crimea. So we have, Alexei Navalny and our team for years have advocated personal sanctions against perpetrators of corruption and human rights. And our words were falling on deaf ears. And uh, now in the last uh, month and a half after the war started, we've seen an avalanche of sanctions. So... That's It's better late than never.
0: And do you feel satisfied now, roughly, with the approach that the British government has been taking? In lots of ways, as you say, a sudden willingness to go after Russian oligarchs and to impose sanctions on Russia. That is such a big change compared to the attitude less than a year ago. But does it—is it enough, especially when it's not just money in all these places, but I suppose that the the difficulty of actually accessing a lot of oligarchs' wealth means that
1: was probably hard to read. Sanctions are not a silver bullet that will make Putin change his ways. I wish there was a silver bullet that would stop this war and this uh, senseless brutality, but there isn't. So sanctions have a two components. It's Punishment. It's punishing people who if we talk about personal sanctions, punishing people that have been involved in corruption and human rights abuse. And it's deterrent. It's creating motivation for these people who have been beneficiaries of Putin's regime and who know how the system works, a motivation to change the system because only after this totalitarian political construction that is that we see now in Russia, only after that changes will these sanctions against against oligarch will be lifted. It's uh, it's not a short-term solution. We don't expect these personal sanctions to result in immediate results within days or weeks. It's a medium-term instrument. And <laughs> um, indeed, the sanctions, both personal sanctions and industry-wide sanctions, have been quite unprecedented. And since we've seen over this weekend, the evidence of atrocities that Russian army has been conducting in Ukraine, I would expect a a new wave of sanctions from the UK and other Western countries.
0: And watching things unfold in Ukraine from London, I'm wondering what you I mean, I presume that you you follow the, the political debate in the United Kingdom very closely. And I'm wondering, like, with with a Russian perspective and as part of Navalny's team, what do you think we miss in that debate or, or what people are getting wrong or not talking enough about? Well, I think
1: if the sanctions were introduced earlier, because the the way the West and the UK were responding to Putin's assertiveness over the last eight years. It was the annexation of Crimea. It was the meddling in eastern Ukraine, which left 14,000 people dead even before the war started a month ago. It was involvement in the Middle East on the side of Brutal regime of Bashar Assad. It was assassination of Skripals on UK territory. And despite all this, we have heard quite tough rhetoric from British authorities, in particular a speech by Theresa May after Skripals' poisoning. But we haven't seen any real action. So if these sanctions were at least partially adopted some time ago, I I think this would have given Putin a reason to pause, in it might have averted this aggression, because Putin was felt emboldened by West's apparent inability to counter his aggressiveness.
0: Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer.
1: I'm Andrew Marr.
0: And I'm Alva Ray.
1: We'd like to invite you to join us at the first New Statesman Politics Live conference on Tuesday the 28th of June, right at the heart of the action in Westminster.
0: This new flagship conference will showcase the best of the New Statesman's political coverage with a range of engaging events from panels and live interviews to speeches and debates, plus a special live recording of the New Statesman podcast.
1: We'll hear from some of the biggest names in British politics on the most important issues facing the UK. Speakers will include the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, discussing national security, and Lisa Nandy, who will be talking on issues of levelling up and the so-called Red Wall for Labour.
0: You'll be in good company too, with an audience of leaders from industry, politics, journalism and the universities. We'll grapple with the most pressing policy questions facing the UK today.
1: If you'd like to join us, please register using the link in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there.
0: What do you think it was that, I'm interested in? just in your personal view on this, what was it that prevented the political establishment in London from listening to these calls from you and Navalny uh, a long time ago, or Theresa May from acting on that after
1: her quite robust statement? I, I think people have a tendency to to be optimistic and not to learn from history. This situation is similar to the run-up to the Second World War and how the Western countries were turning a blind eye to Hitler's more and more uh, blatant acts of aggression. And something like this probably has been happening over the last decade with the Western countries, UK including, and Putin's regime. I think the British political establishment was quite preoccupied with other things, Brexit, etc. And they were reluctant to take decisive action.
0: And I wonder what has it been like on a personal level then? You came to here in, in 2014 and received asylum in 2015. After such a close experience of the Russian regime, um, what has it been like observing the Western approach from London? and and arriving at this point how's that felt for you
1: well whatever whatever flaws we can find in the western political systems it's uh it's nothing compared to what we find in Russia here the political system is representative of people's opinion the rule of law works the mass media is free and these are the things that countries like Russia are severely lacking. So we may criticize the way British political establishment is indecisive, is slow in responding to various challenges, but still, it's, uh, I believe it's a robust system that is policing itself. Democracy is still the best system despite its flaws.
0: And as well as the, the sanctions and so on that we've already been talking about, I know that you have a view on the use of the, this phrase "slaps," strategic litigation against public participation and other sort of types of lawfare often used by Russians in the UK to, ha- to have a chilling effect essentially on journalists. I wonder if you would mind I'm explaining a little bit about how that works. It's something that within journalism, I know journalists are acutely aware of, but the, the very nature of this means that we don't often talk about it or report on it, even though people often have direct experience of it in their newsrooms. So just explaining how that works and what could really be done about it.
1: Sure. So, yes, one often overlooked aspect of the radically changed relationship between Russia and the West is the area of law and slaps uh, lawsuits against journalists and writers that uh, try to silence them is one example of that, and we've seen a number of high-profile lawsuits, in particular against a writer-journalist Catherine Belton, who wrote a book Putin's People, which directly links some of the oligarchs, some of them who have been sanctioned over the last month, to Putin's regime, and names them as benefactors. And they try to silence. Her by launching a lawsuit against her and the publishing house. So yes, slaps are indeed a, an instrument that is often used by people with money, people uh, who have been involved in corruption to to silence journalists and uh, writers. But the issue is much more, much more wide. British courts, English courts, are the place where. Litigation involving billions of dollars is, is held, uh, a lot of it that relates to Russia and Russian state-owned companies. And the assumption, the legal system, is that there are equal enforcement opportunities. If a judge decides in favor of a Russian party, then it will be enforced in Russia or in favor of a foreign party, it will be enforced in Britain or any other foreign country. But Russia, over the last years, have used legal system to abuse this power. For instance, evidence obtained under duress and uh, due to close interaction between the Russian state enterprises can use law enforcement bodies to intimidate witnesses, to seize documents, and as well as to create false evidence. And British judges use this evidence at uh, face value in these proceedings. Another aspect, in 2020, there was an amendment to Russian constitution that said that Russian law was prevails over international law and international commitments of Russia if the constitution courts decide. So it does create a very unequal enforcement situation. I think it's not possible anymore for the British judges to have an implicit belief in the Russian legal system. And uh, I think that the right thing would be to suspend all litigation that involves Russia state-related actors, Russian state, Russian central bank, Russian state companies, because any judgment against them wouldn't be enforced in Russia. And these measures should remain in place until there's a change of regime in Russia, and the Russian legal set system would be able to satisfy reasonable standards of the rule of law.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. And and I think an angle that isn't often talked about here, this role that London plays in Russian litigation internationally and and, and really the quite central role that sort of the British state could take in, in simply suspending that. But since you mentioned regime change there, I wonder if we could just end by talking about the situation in Russia as it stands and how likely you see regime change anytime soon with this war unfolding in Ukraine and how the public mood is is shifting
1: or or isn't. In order for a regime change to happen in Russia, there has to be a combination of uh, dissatisfaction of the Russian political and economic elite with how Russia is governed by Putin on one side, and on the other side, dissatisfaction with how things are running in the white population. And this brutal aggression has brought forward the the date when uh, the system will crumble. People in the elite have seen their lifestyles turned upside down. They have seen their fortunes decimated because of plunge in the ruble, because of sanctions, because of elimination of access to international capital markets. And the average Russian, as well, is seeing a rampant uh, inflation. Foreign companies that people have become used to, like McDonald's, IKEA, are leaving Russia. And the coffins with dead soldiers are arriving to Russia daily. So all this would inevitably lead to a political crisis that will have to be resolved. I don't have the time frame for this. I don't have the scenario of how it will unfold. But this Putin's blunder, his brutal aggression against Ukraine, definitely has brought this moment forward.
0: Vladimir Ashurkov, thank you so much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. Thank you, Alvan. You've been listening to the New States of the Podcast with me, Elva Ray, and our special guest, Vladimir Ashurkov. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe.